0: Listening to Leaders' Voices for the Leaders of Africa Project, a broadcast that focuses on leadership and the experiences of thought leaders across African countries. My name is Peter Panar. I'm a political science researcher here at Michigan State University in the United States. I'm also the host of this Leaders of Africa Project broadcast. In this episode, we speak with Gambian journalist Ms. Fatou Kamara, who is the founder and CEO of the Fatou Network, an online radio station focusing on the politics and ongoings in the Gambia. I will ask Ms. Camera about her interest in journalism and experiences working in the Gambia and in the United States. I will also get Ms. Camera's views on the Gambia's political transition and the process of transitional justice. How can good journalism make a difference before, during, and after a major political transition? What is President Barrow's vision for the Gambia and what obstacles lie ahead? How has the political transition changed political competition and allegiances in the Gambia? Today, we pose these questions and many others to our guest today, Ms. Fatou Kamara. Ms. Fatou Mata Kamara is a Gambian board broadcaster and journalist who currently lives in exile in Georgia. Fatou attended school in Birmingham, UK, in 1996, where she studied media and communications. Upon returning to the Gambia, Fatu worked at the national TV station as a news anchor until 2000, and again in 2002 through 2005. After working at the U.S. Embassy in Banjul as a protocol assistant and military liaison, she founded the Gambia's first-ever TV talk show, The Fatu Show, which became the most watched program in the country. In 2011, and again in 2013, Fatu served as President Yahya Jameh's press secretary. In this capacity, she was arrested in 2013, ultimately being detained for 25 days and held in incommunicado for, quote, tarnishing the image of the president, end quote, which carried a 15-year prison term. Ms. Kamara is joining us via Skype from Georgia in the United States. Welcome, Ms. Kamara, to the Leaders of Africa Project.
1: Well, thank you very much. It's an honor to be here.
0: Now, it's great to have you on as you're so knowledgeable about many of these issues so let's start with your background a bit how did you get your start in journalism i gave a little bit in the introduction what made you interested in the field of journalism and communication more broadly
1: well it was in 1994 when the then president yaya Jammeh took over power and that was when i finished high school in gambia And I was uh, listening to the radio all the time, because those days, everyone would listen to the radio and, uh, you know, hear the updates coming from the military juncture. So that attention that got everyone going to the radio, I said to my mom, you know, I think I want to do, you know, I want to be a journalist. So that was how my mom sent me to a local radio station uh, called Radio 1 FM. And that was where I started my journalism career.
0: And how did you come to do your studies in the UK?
1: Well, uh, because at that time we did not have a university in the Gambia. It was only Gambia College. Uh, so my parents sent me to the, uh, to the UK uh, to do media and communication. That was the reason. Now that we have a university in the Gambia, some people are staying there now. But until now, the majority of the Gambians will go outside, uh, you know, to attend university. And
0: currently, as I mentioned in the introduction, you're based in the United States in Georgia. I mentioned some of your reasons. I wonder if you could elaborate on some of the circumstances for you coming to the U.S. and how you find the U.S. for doing your, your current work.
1: Well, I lived in the U.S. before in 2000. I used to live in Michigan in Troy. Uh, but then I went back home because I wanted to serve my country. And uh, when I went back, uh, you, you know, started my job as a, as a journalist. And I realized that in Gambia, there are certain things, you know, we cannot say because everything you say about the government has to be something that is, you know, that would compliment him. Like he's the best president in Africa or he's very giving. He provides scholarships and stuff like that. Uh, so when i started a show i was advised by the television not to say anything that is critical of the government Mm -hmm. so i decided to go into social issues i talk about divorce talk about uh, cervical cancer for women's health and stuff like that and then the president appointed me as his press secretary and the first thing i said to him was i think you should meet the press you know which he never did uh, mm-hmm. So, he accepted that offer, he uh, met with the press, and uh, even though the meeting didn't end well, at the end of the meeting, he was like, oh, you know, I have to go right now because I don't like the attitude of or the question that some of the journalists were bringing. Uh, so since that time, he looked at me as somebody who is critical, because mm-hmm. I thought that the press should be vibrant. I thought that the press should be uh, very independent and there should be no censorship. Uh, So while I was working with him, I advised him to do to have a Twitter page Facebook and all of that And he you know, he said no Mm -hmm. and then you know after a while in 2011 I was removed by him and uh, Then he hired me again in 2013 and said well uh, The first one was a mistake because people misled me but this time around, you know, you will be here until Mm -hmm. you go yourself so then after three months, I was arrested and, um, you know, detained at the NIA for 25 days, incommunicado, without access to lawyers or to my children. Yeah. And uh, then after that, um, a, a few weeks after that, I was picked up at 10 o'clock at night and uh, detained. And I was taken to court. And uh, the, the the Office of the National Intelligence told me that I did nothing wrong because they investigated, they took my uh, email password and... Um, my facebook password they check my email and they said oh you didn't do anything wrong but the president is insisting that we charge you because your case brought in a lot of uh attention the bbc mm-hmm. the guardian and all this international amnesty international is on it so we don't want to let you go like that because then that way somebody could tell you to sue the government so there is a charge but it didn't come from us it came from the attorney general so just go to court and accept so you know i was taken to court And I was charged with tarnishing the image of the president and I said, no, not guilty. And uh, after a while, you know, I jumped to bail and I traveled to the U.S.
0: And so now that you are in the U.S. and playing this very important role in the diaspora right now, what have you learned about how the African diaspora functions, for example, in the United States? And what role does the diaspora play specifically in this Gambian transition?
1: I think the uh, the big chunk of the work uh, in removing Jammeh came from the diaspora, and that is because we have freedom of expression here. Uh, You can set up an online tea, online radio, you know, without going through what you would go through in Africa, like you have to register it, go through the information ministry and all of that. We don't have to deal with any of that. And uh, we can speak our mind anyhow we want, anytime we want. And when Jammeh visited the U.S. before, we protest and we will be given permits to do that. So all of that helped us in looking at things differently and like, okay, we don't have this in our country, but this is how it should be. So we decided to stand up uh, the diaspora and hold Jamé accountable. So the stuff that he was trying to hide from the Gambian people, the diaspora brought that to the people. Like when um, I set up the Fatou Network, my website was blocked in the Gambia so that people Mm -hmm. would not access it because Jamé does not want the people to see anything critical of him. And then we started uh, developing an app. So the Fartu Network has an app. And we will tell the people now that the website is blocked, go through the app. You know, you will be able to listen and you will be able to see what we have on there. And we use Facebook a lot. We put all the information out on Facebook. And uh, if you look at the Fato Network, we have the highest number of followers among every Gambia, um, you know, in the Gambia. Mm-hmm. So people started following us and, um, you know, they're like, okay, maybe we need to pay attention because what these people are telling us is true. So that's how the diaspora got the attention of the people on the ground. And we also set up like WhatsApp groups where we would send voice notes and say, oh, you know, this person, Jama killed this person. And when they denied, we would interview the family members or friends on the need without them saying who they are. And we would send those voicemails and people would listen to them and say, oh, you know, we really have to pay attention. What these people are telling us is true. Because Jammeh was calling us serial liars. He said we are the serial liars. But at some point, people know we're not serial liars mm-hmm. in in fact we want the best for Gambia.
0: Now, thinking about that, some of those processes you talked about in the social media, uh, particularly creating an app to deal with the challenges you were having and dealing with the site blocking take place. We see a lot of this issue around internet censorship taking place in a number of African countries, uh, most recently and in a very high-profile way in parts of Cameroon. It's just had internet restored after a number of weeks without access to internet. We've also seen certain blocking taking place around elections in Gabon and in Uganda. So I'm wondering, are there any lessons from the experience of, of the Gambia that can be applied to some of these other cases? And are you involved in some of those efforts?
1: Well, yes, right now I'm working with a few countries in Africa after we successfully, um, you know, a dictator out of power. Uh, Some other African countries are working with us and we are trying to, um, you know, lead them to the same way that we took when we were ready to take uh, Jami out of power. So what uh, we did was we knew that Jami, you know, he blocked the internet a few times Mm -hmm. and on election day he did that. Uh, we found ways of. Uh, I think there is a uh, uh, fire fire wire or something that we used. There's a whole lot of different ones that we uh, we use just in case the internet was blocked. And mm-hmm. what we also did was to give satellite phones to a few people. So when even uh, the internet was blocked on election day, we still have people send us photos. You know, it was really difficult. But this is all. This can all be done when you uh, work in advance. Because with dictators, they're unpredictable. You know, they can do anything. So we were making sure that we work with IT experts, people who have a lot of experience in IT, information technology. And they were also helping us so that when he blocked one thing, we can always find another way.
0: Now, are other opposition parties or civil society very receptive to these ideas, say in the DRC or Cameroon? Have you ever worked with them indirectly or how's that taking place? How's that transfer of techniques taking place.
1: Well, we're working with Cameroon and DRC uh and um they actually uh are learning from us and they're open to it. That's the the, the people in the diaspora. Mm. Those are the ones that we're working with uh, who are also engaged in the same struggle that uh, you know we were engaged in. So they li- they're definitely listening. In fact, I should be going to one meeting in uh, in um, in africa um i think in july or august mm-hmm. you know to speak to them about our experience and how we did it so they're very receptive to, to our ideas
0: so one of the criticisms that oftentimes regimes use is that the diaspora is not here they've abandoned the people they've somehow left or they're somehow agents of the west i'm sure you know all the different terminologies that used in a number of countries How do you respond to that? And how do you recast that terminology that is often being portrayed in terms of the diaspora?
1: Well, they did say that. They did say that we're we're living uh, large, you know, in very good Mm -hmm. conditions, and we are trying to bring problems to the people, and that we are being used by the West and all of that. We've had that. Jami, in fact, said that publicly. Uh, But uh, what we did in in situations like that, we told our people, you know, we could have lived here and be quiet. That's an option, Right. I could mm-hmm. enjoy Africa, put on all the nice clothes and go shopping and go to all the beautiful places. But we didn't do that. We are fighting for our people. So we told them that what, what, the, what some of these African leaders are telling them is just they're misleading them. They're trying right. to cover up because they cannot speak in Africa. We are here speaking for them so that we can bring about that change. And at some point, the people got that. They understood.
0: Wonderful. Now, let's move to the political transition in the Gambia. President Barrow has announced his desire to set up a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. So, from your understanding right now, what form do you think that Truth and Reconciliation Commission will take place? And what is the process that it will take to set up a commission?
1: Well, I returned from a study tour in Sierra Leone because I will be part of the Truth and Reconciliation Committee. I am designated to be the, um, the communication strategist. Uh, We actually went to Sierra Leone to see where they failed and uh, where they were successful. And that way we would use those ideas and set up our own model. Because the situation in Gambia wasn't a war. It was a brutal uh, dictatorship. Mm -hmm. So what we're trying to do is, um, you know, uh, learn from them and also set our own. We put out recommendations after we came back from the story tour, And we have one more to do, which will be to South Africa, hopefully in uh, July, and after that we would you know put out the model that we think would work for gambia and we know right now that there's a lot of gambians want prosecution because that's what they're saying but this was a dictatorship and a lot of things happened that people did that they would not have done in a normal circumstance but you know as the saying goes uh with a dictatorship is this way or else you know there's always a price to pay so some of those people who were engaged in uh certain things did that to save themselves because if you don't do it, you are gonna get killed yourself. So we're trying to explain to our people that we cannot prosecute everyone. Of course, there'll be prosecutions because there are people who killed. But at the same time, we're trying, we're, you know, Gambia is very divided right now. So we're trying to bring our people together. I think that would be the main obje- uh, you know, objective of the TRC in Gambia.
0: Now, you mentioned the study tour that you uh, most recently did. What were some of the lessons that you learned from those different country contexts, from learning a little bit about Sierra Leone and Liberia? What, What were some of the lessons you learned?
1: That peace is the best thing in the world. You know, when I met women who were sexually abused by the rebels and also the amputees, you know, the war wounded, I mean, looking at those people, I mean, you just cannot imagine how um, the Sierra Leoneans can do that to their own people, I mean, the rebels. So um, after I got out from there, I said to my people, we are very lucky we didn't have to get to a situation like this. Mm-hmm. So I think I will be uh, very, very, I'm honored to be part of the people. Who will bring our people together and um you know try to talk to them because the sierra leoneans will tell you that the reason that why they had that war was because people were angry for a long time and also um because the lack of education also played a part in it the corruption and all of that so i'll be um, a part of those people who will talk to our people to avoid anything like that in the future
0: Now, in terms of the truth and reconciliation, we have this peace process that's taking place to really debrief what happened for many years in in the Gambia. But then we also have the governing side in terms of the way forward for the country. It seems, uh, from an outside observer, that the Gambian political landscape is changing. It's changed, but it's also changing quickly right now. Though maybe not in in the larger, you know, media sphere being talked about. For example, you know, the APRC, the former ruling party, it held a majority, a vast majority of seats in parliament now only holds a few and right now the coalition that's in power seems to be fragmenting in some ways and i'm so i'm curious what is going on between the parties right now and and what is causing this fractioning within the ruling coalition itself
1: i think there's always a problem when uh, um uh, when a government is formed by a coalition because uh, remember all these people wanted to be president they all have ambitions So when they came together and it was time for the National Assembly elections, we told that, and that was what we wanted in the diaspora, we told them that it would be best if they all go together as a coalition, you know, in the National Assembly, and then the APRC would be the opposition, and of course, the GDC uh, of Mama Kande and other parties. But uh, they refused to do that because they also, all of them are trying to consolidate power, you know, to get power so that immediately Barrow leaves office they would also be president. So that is one of the reasons they all wanted the majority in the National Assembly. So they decided to split. And right now UDP, the party where Barrow came from, they have the majority in parliament with 31 seats. And um, I guess uh, they all want to consolidate power. That's why they decided not to be together. But we thought that that is not in the best interest of the Gambia because the best interest of the Gambia is to follow the coalition agenda. It is an agreement that should only last for uh, for three years. So we thought they would come together, do all the constitutional reforms, because Jammeh butchered that constitution to the core. So uh, that was what we expected. But no, I think they wanted to consolidate power for their individual parties and go into partisan politics, which is very unfortunate.
0: Now, in thinking about the APRC right now, there are some members in the current parliament. But I'm curious, what happened to the APRC MPs and and also the sympathizers have they warmed up to the agenda of the coalition are they holding out for a Jame return are there differences amongst them are they still trying to figure that out what so what is this current situation of those APRC MPs and and broader sympathizers
1: about 7 8 of their MPs moved to the opposition party you know they this uh, cross capited to them uh, they are now supporting the opposition, and uh, some of their members are with the conviction that Jame is going to come back, even though many Gambians are telling them that is not going to happen. If you see this man here, it will be only for prosecution. But they believe that uh, he will be in the Gambia someday. Uh, some other APRC members are also joining the, you know, the, the UDP. You know how it is like in in Africa. Most of the people believe that uh, incumbent has always, you know, is always the party with all the powers because people want jobs. They want jobs. So they think that if you don't side with the incumbent and the ruling party, you would not be able to be comfortable in that country. They feel that. and, And you know, that's how it is in Africa. If you want uh, favors and jobs from a government, you have to be associated with them, which is very unfortunate. So this is the reason why people like us are going back home to try to talk to our people and try to educate them so that they would vote for the, uh, for any politician who has the best interest of the country and not the best interest of, of, of an individual.
0: Could you have predicted who from the APRC would warm up to the coalition agenda before the transition? So in other words, were these APRC members who were more uh, Jammeh critics or are they just, uh, as you seem to suggest, being very calculating in their decision to join the coalition efforts?
1: Well, they just I think I don't think they were in uh, support of Jammeh because of Jammeh. They were in support of Jammeh because he was the president. He was the incumbent. You know, like I said, they could get all the favors and all of that. So it wasn't like genuine. And remember, this guy is the dictatorship. Sometimes in the office. Uh, if If you are like an opposition, you will be removed from your job. So that was one of the reasons why those people were supporting him. And that's the same reason why they decided to move to the opposition now, they're going where the power is.
0: One of the things that's not necessarily widely known about Gambian politics is the ethnic component to politics. And I'm curious, could you just describe for those who are watching, you know, what is the main ethnic dimension here in in the Gambia And, and when did this start? Is this a phenomenon that began under Jame's rule or is this something that's beginning to be a more important and salient issue now that a transition to a more open and free dispensation has taken place?
1: Well, he has always been there through Jammeh, because the Mandinka, which is the tribe that I'm from, where 46% of the population were the, uh, the biggest um, ethnic group in Gambia. Uh, but when Jammeh, the first president of Gambia was Mandinka, and then Jammeh came in and he's from the minority, like very, very, very small, because the, the Jammeh tribe, they were the ones who were helping Gambians in terms of like housemaids and babysitters and stuff. So then, you know, all of a sudden a president came from that tribe which is the, the, you know, the minority, like the, they have the lowest percentage in Gambia. So when that happened, jamme um, some people said some, uh, uh, some, you know, he believed so much in black magic that someone told Jame that the next president would be Mandinka. And all of a sudden he came out, you know, uh, lashing out at Mandinka, saying that he's going to kill Mandinkas. So I think maybe you must have heard about that. Yeah. He said he was going to kill Mandinkas, and that Mandinkas are bad people, and that they're not good people. So when he said that, the Mandinkas are like, okay, now we had all of this, we're going to make sure that this man is out of power. They decided to come with songs. Oh, Jamme, now that you touch the Mandinkas, you would learn a bitter lesson. So all those songs came out in Mandinka and all of that, and, um, you know, we talk amongst ourselves, and we're like, now it's time to remove this guy. And then he came out and said, oh. When I talk like that, I'm talking about the bad Mandinkas, not the good ones. Remember, mm-hmm. I have some Mandinkas in the government, but they are the good ones. So uh, that was when this um, this uh, tribal issue started in Gambia. And now that the Mandinkas are in the government, majority of the ministers are all Mandinkas. Now the other tribes are also saying, now, wait a minute. Is this a Mandinka government? Mm-hmm. What happened to us? Like Jamis tribe, the minority, they're like, we are not represented in cabinet. We are not in high positions. All our people who were hired by Jamie are all removed. So now it became, you know, it's something that's very sensitive and is brewing up in Gambia. We're trying to, some people are trying to make it sound like it doesn't exist. But Mm -hmm. tribalism is really in Gambia. And we're trying to use the media to talk to people and say, "Is one Gambia, one tribe. Uh, We have T-shirts and uh, we have uh, um, logos on Facebook that we're trying to share with everyone Uh, to let them know. And we're also trying to tell the government, I'm a Mandinka myself, but hire people from different tribes as well. It doesn't Mm -hmm. have to be only us. That would be unfair.
0: Mm -hmm. So you've alluded to my next question a a bit. What can be done? And you're talking about some efforts here, but what can be done on a broader political level to prevent an over-ethnicized politics in The Gambia? When we see countries like Kenya, where the politics is very much organized around what tribe it is, And that leads to your political party and whether you're hired and things like this. So what can make Gambia different? How can they confront this issue that you now describe?
1: Through sensitization. And I think the president should also be out to speak about it. When all of this happened, he never said a word. You know, he's always been very quiet. And uh, Gambians are saying, well, he needs to come out and say, I am the president. I'm a Mandinka, but I'm a Gambian. You know, that's the bigger picture and try to assure, you know, reassure people and assure people that uh, he would not accept tribalism. But he's been quiet about it. We've been speaking, the local people have been speaking up, but we didn't hear anything from the government.
0: Now, is there anything that political parties should be doing in terms of recruiting candidates or recruiting functionaries? You mentioning hiring hiring within the the government itself but are there anything that political parties can do to show that not only discursively that that gambia is one gambia but but that also their political agents are also performing in that way
1: well yeah they've tried to do that like the biggest political party in gambia the udp uh, the second person uh, in line is a wolof It's a wolof and they also have uh, um other tribes like the jola so which we think is also a good thing and uh the other political parties as well, yeah, they they they're all doing that. They're all trying to live by that. But people are saying there is no other tribe in the man, in in the government, in the cabinet of the president. They're all majority of them are all mandinkas and they are the ones holding key positions. But the opposition, yeah, they do have different tribes. I mean, it's unfortunate that Africa is always confronted with this. I live in the US. I lived here before, I came back here. I don't even know which tribe is well who, whoever. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. nobody talks about. Life. It is so unfortunate. You know, it will be one of the things that I'll be I'll be working on to make sure that we don't have that. For instance, if you look at Senegal, mm-hmm. they don't discuss drive issues. They don't have that.
0: That's true. Now, when we turn to the Gambian's constitution, what is the state of the Gambian's constitution? Does it need revision? Is it is it still a foundation to build the Republican, the president has also talked about revising the constitution in a number of areas, for example, related to his uh, nominee for the vice presidency, changing the age requirements. What do you think of the current constitution of the Gambia? Is it something that can be built on or does it need to be reformed? And what do you think of President Burroughs' efforts to reform the constitution in, in a number of areas?
1: Well, every Gambian is calling for um, a reform of the constitution because Gambia change a whole lot. What he was doing, if he wants something done, he would just say, oh, change this, amend this section, and it will be done. And you know, that's so unfair. Uh, that is how he came up with the upper age limit, where if you're over 65, you cannot be vice president. And if you were removed by the president, you cannot be vice president, because Jammeh was removing people all the time. And he doesn't want to remove someone, and the next minute that person will still be in government. So all of that thing, we're, tra- we're calling on the president, and the ministry of justice to do a constitutional uh, reform mm-hmm. and uh, the good news is a constitutional review committee is being set up that's what we understand and once that is done uh, it will be uh, reviewed and i think that's something that is very urgent that should be done look at this until right now we don't have a vice president because the president's picked is over 65 his pick is over 65 Mm-hmm. You know, so uh, until now, uh, they tried to get a few people, but all those people worked with Yame before, and they were removed. So they cannot also be vice president. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, for some reason, they want a motherly figure. That's what they said. Somebody who would be a female, and like a mother. So mm-hmm. until now, we don't have that. If the constitutional was, if the constitution was reformed, this would not have been a problem.
0: That's very interesting points there, and. And one of the, the things that we're now getting into is President Barrow himself. And and obviously not many of us have met him personally. So we hear about him through the news, how he's portrayed. And so I'm curious, you, you've recently met with President Barrow. I'm wondering, how is he like? Describe his approach to leadership. Is he a hands-on type of leader? Is he a micromanager or is he a see himself as a general overseer of of a lot of these transitions in the Gambia. So what is he like and and how does he go about his style of leadership?
1: I think Barrow has said this many times that he never even thought in his life that he would be in government much more be a president. But again, when he was asked if he was an accidental president, he said, no, I'm not an accidental president. (laughs) Uh, But what happened is uh, he does not seem to have an idea as to how government works because he, he never worked in government. And the people around him, most of them were op- uh, you know, were in the opposition and they did not also work in government. So you can see the challenge that he has. Uh, but what he did is he kind of like um, have too much uh, faith in the ministers around him. So he would let them do what they have to do while he, learned on the, on, on, while he learns on the job. I know it's a very tough one, uh, especially in a situation that the Gambia is in right now after 22 years of dictatorship. Uh, but definitely, we all feel that he's a bit slow. And when I met with him, I raised those concerns, and he said, "You know, I took from um, you know a brutal dictatorship, and the handing over was not done for was not done uh, you know properly. But you all should give me time. I'm learning, and I will get there soon." That's what he's been saying. But majority of the government saying that he is slow, and that because he doesn't have a lot of experience, that's also affecting him.
0: Now, a number of opposition parties in African countries come under this criticism that, you know, the the regime or the leader may may not be the best leader, but at least they'll be slightly less worse than the opposition. Because as you mentioned, you know, there's an issue of capacity to lead, you know, once they get into these positions, as many of them in the opposition have not had experience directly in government. Mm-hmm. So do you think that borrow feels the weight of this piece here in, in his ruling and in, in terms of being concerned about these criticisms that opposition leaders cannot perform well in, in a role as president or in the government directly?
1: Well, I think, yeah, he knows that. And when people say it, the good thing is he um, I heard he's been uh, listening to the diaspora a lot. On, uh, through our websites and everything that we're writing. And uh, the the unfortunate part is he still has those opposition members who cannot perform very well, you know, in Africa because all they want is to be president. And that is why people have a problem with the government because we're saying the people who uh, form the coalition, we understand they did very great, but do they really have to be compensated with positions? The minister of agriculture is the head of the PPP. The foreign affairs is the head of the UDP. Uh, the Minister for Um uh, uh Fisheries is also part of the PPP. So all the top ministers, the finance minister is part of the PP of the UDP. So this is the problem. So it's like we, we're in the same place because we mm-hmm. still have them running the country.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: we're not moving forward.
0: <laughs> yeah. Now, <as laughs> President, you, saying, go
1: on. Yeah. Yeah, many many are saying that if you go to their offices now, it's like a it's like a market. Because all these people are there, oh, I want to be in your party. So that gives them little time to be able to concentrate on the work of the country, mm-hmm. unfortunately.
0: Now, is there an opposition in The Gambia? Outside of those holdout APRC members who think maybe that Jame will come back or are hoping that, are there any forces of real opposition to President Barra at this time? No. Nope. Because
1: what he has is the coalition and the leading uh, opposition right now is the party that he came from you know when he ha- had to uh, be presidential candidate he has to um you know resign from the party but that's mm-hmm. his party they have 31 seats in parliament and they have all the top uh you know ministerial appointments so no opposition to him I- i'm getting word that some gambians in the diaspora both in the u.s and in the uk are on the verge of forming political parties but it's not official yet
0: mm-hmm. now one of the things that um is going on in the Gambia is the stationing of these regional ECOWAS troops in the country and have been there since the transition period of time. And it seems like, for, as an outside observer, that President Barrow doesn't really trust the military at this point or is trying to do things with the military. Is this a fair assumption? Does he does he mistrust the military? Or what is that relationship right now?
1: Well, yes, because the military, um, you know, were recruited by JAMI, most of them, and Some of them are not even Gambians they are uh, from Casamans, you know, uh, they're the same tribe as Jammeh But they're from the southern part of Senegal Uh, So jam those are the people that Jammeh recruited in the army and uh, in the Gambian army It was about loyalty to Jammeh and not loyalty to the country So Barrow knows that and there's a lot of people who do not want uh, the Mandinkas because like I said the Jolas form the majority of the uh, of the military so Barrow knows that when he came in and until now He's being guarded by economic soldiers, not Gambian soldiers. There is no Gambian soldier around him. And uh, last week, the, the, the chief of the Gambian army is on tour, which is the first time he's going out to meet the military. And can you imagine he went with, I heard, somebody told me about 80 officers around him, mm-hmm. you know, for his security. So nobody in the Gambia right now trusts the army. But what are we going to do with them? I mean, you can't just let them go like that. These are trained killers because Jami trained them to kill people. I'm, I'm sure you heard about the junglers who were there killing Gambians, and anybody who do not believe in uh, Jamia's ideologies. So we're stuck with them. I know it's going to be a very difficult uh, situation for Gambia, as that's why a lot of people are saying, until now, the situation in Gambia is very fluid, It's still not safe when it comes to security. Had the, the economic troops not been in Gambia, you know, there could have been a coup. Yeah. I am 100% sure about that. The military would have done whatever they could to bring Jamia back, because right now People are saying Jame has more intelligence on Gambia security than President Barrow because his people are the ones who are in the military. They're also the ones in the police. They're also the ones in the intelligence. So all of that is a problem. And, you know, we understand that Barrow does not trust them, but he cannot de- keep depending on Ecomic. Mm-hmm. At some point, have to work with the military of the Gambia. Right now, Ekomek gave him 500 uh, 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 men and we got word that he wants to add that to one thousand. But how long can you been doing it? Can you be doing that? You know, it's a bit difficult. But he will have to face his military and work with them.
0: Now, what can be done to bridge this long-term divide that's taking place between the civilian leadership and the on the one hand, and the military? Are there any particular steps, in addition to dialogue, that he should take to signal to the military? one way or the other
1: well i think some are saying provide training programs for them you know try to get some of them to do other things like take them through the immigration to the police and all of that but i think the communication part is also very important if the president can communicate with them he has still not spoken to them you yeah. know he has not visited them i think that could all help and sometimes you don't know i mean the reason why some of them were very loyal to jamie like I said, he was the president. He's a dictator. I mean, by talking to them, you could you could change that. You know, mm-hmm. they could become loyal to you. you. You know, there's nothing wrong with trying. I think communication is the key here. Talk to them uh, since we cannot just ask all of them to go home like that.
0: That's a good point for sure, too begin that dialogue now as sooner rather than later, as you mentioned, that ECOWAS is currently there and, and now requiring more and more troops. So Gambians yeah. are wondering where, where this is going to end or where this is going. Absolutely. Now, one of the things that is interesting to me, somebody who studies opposition parties, also accountability mechanisms, is the fact, as you mentioned early, there really isn't any opposition to President Adam Baro right now which leaves a very big vacuum in terms of pressing for accountability. So I'm curious, now that there's been this new openness in The Gambia, particularly around what civil society can do, what the media can do, what is the role of both the media and civil society in holding leaders to account, at least in the short run where there isn't a clear opposition, a political opposition to President Barra?
1: Well, it is very difficult right now to do that. Uh, This is a country that's coming from dictatorship, 22 years of dictatorship, where the media was really censored. And uh, some of that was self-censorship, you know, to be safe for their security. Uh, Now, what happened was when Barrow came, he said, you can all speak up. You know, there'll be freedom of the press. Uh, But what happened now, most of the people in the media are now censoring themselves. You know, I have seen that too, that most of them are into self-censorship, because once you start criticizing the government, a lot of people would come out and say, oh, Jammeh was killing people. You never speak. So now that who did Barack kill? He didn't kill people. So now it's like it's normal for a president to kill someone before people start speaking. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's also one issue. But the civil society, they are really, you know, doing articles, holding him accountable, especially with the the appointment uh, of uh, the fact that we don't have a vice president uh, for a long time now. And uh, the press in the diaspora, we're also trying, but we do come under a lot of criticism uh, by supporters of the Barrow administration and supporters of uh, of the opposition party uh, that he was in. It's really, really difficult for us right now. It's really mm-hmm. tough because whatever we say the, the supporters will jump on us. Oh yeah, you never said this like this when Jammeh was there, why are you saying this? But despite all of that, uh, we're trying to find a way. and. Uh, the fact that African, uh, African leaders are also very sensitive. Uh, anytime you, you say something about them or their political parties, they stop speaking to you. Mm-hmm. You know, they turn as an enemy and they will call you like a bad son or a bad daughter of, of the country. So that's also another challenge that we are faced with. They are not open. Like mm-hmm. the opposition leaders would tell you all the good things before they get into office. We were working with them, we were talking to them every time. Mm-hmm. Jammedina- to the television and the radio, they were using our networks here in the diaspora. But once they get in, they stop talking to all of us. Mm -hmm. And now you say something, they hold it against you that you are bad. They stop speaking to you. So that's also an issue that we're faced with. And unless and until Africa has young people to step up, we would always face these issues.
0: And so how can the media bridge that divide? Um, Because it seems like Right now, it's in that point where it could go either way. It could become a very productive and healthy media environment in the Gambia, or it could become very destructive. As you, as you mentioned, political party leaders, for example, could throw you out of the, the briefing room if that you've written something or said something that they disagree with. So how does one make sure that it shifts towards a healthy relationship at this early stage?
1: Well, what we're doing is to tell them we're not your enemies. We're trying to do what is expected of us. And remember, Burrow was the one who said, we can all speak our mind, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, they, they're insisting that, oh, then it should be constructive criticism, but you also don't tell us what constructive criticism is because what it means to you could not mean the same to me. So what we're doing is we're sticking to our job. We're saying this is not changing. And uh, we want to make sure that we hold them accountable since day one. Because if you listen to what they're telling you now, and you stop, and you want to start later on, that is when we have all these bad media laws. So they have what they, they can say what they want to say, but we are not stopping. We're doing our job, and we know that we're responsible. We will do it uh, to the best of our ability. We're not out to to tarnish anybody's image. But we just want to make sure that we don't go back to what happened with Jame. Because when he came, people made that mistake. That time I was at high school. But I had people saying, oh, you know, let's give him a chance. He's a very good person. And look where we end up. We don't want to end the same way with Adam Abaro. So we would not stop. We will do our best as long as we know that the fact that we know that what we're doing is is right.
0: So turning to civil society, so you're talking about the media, but then civil society we have on the other hand. When we look at countries like Ghana or Nigeria, there are a number of NGOs, big NGOs that are functioning in those countries that are doing a lot of work, like the Center for Democracy and Governance in, in a, a variety of these different countries. What is the landscape look like in terms of civil society post-JAME uh, right now?
1: Well, you know, JAME killed almost all the civil society organizations in Gambia. Uh, so they're forming up. Uh, right now, there's one uh, like Tango that's uh, doing a great job. But apart from that, many of them are not up speaking up yet. Uh, but now that, uh, uh, you know, there is a semblance of uh, freedom of expression in Gambia, I'm sure a lot will come up. But right now, we really don't have that many civil society organizations in Gambia. But like what, like what I saw in Sierra Leone after the war, um, a lot of NGOs came up. And it could be the same in Gambia now. I'm looking forward to us having a whole lot.
0: Now, what are some of the startup NGOs saying to you about what they need? You mentioned there aren't that many, but some people are talking about creating NGOs. What kind of things do they need and and where do you think they'll get some of the resources that they'll need to function as a high functioning civil society?
1: Well, right now they're contacting uh, international organizations like the UN you know to help them set up you know office space and maybe have um, you know their own staff which doesn't have to be like a big one and then uh, once that is done they want to be able to organize seminars and workshops to educate the people you know sensitization and um, uh, i think those are some of the things that they're looking at and uh, one of them also approached me and said that they would like to work with the TRC. And TRC everywhere did a lot of work with the civil society organizations. Uh, so one of them that I spoke to who is, uh, who's, uh, um, who, who's been doing this work for a long time is going back home to Gambia in August. And once he is there, he will be setting up his own.
0: Now, you mentioned the relationship between Gambian civil society and international organizations. That leads to the influences of the West, perhaps, and where some of the money may come from for civil society. And Mm -hmm. and Jame was always clearly skeptical of Western involvement in the country, at least in his words that he said. But now we've seen an increase in engagement with the West. For example, the UK Foreign Minister Boris Johnson was in the country very early on. We're also we're seeing other countries engage the Gambia. So how much should the Gambia really engage these Western countries and donors? Are they going to be an important part of the transition? Or how do you manage that relationship in, in your view?
1: Well, I think we need them because uh, everywhere that they are, they help with quite um, a lot with sensitization. Uh, for instance, uh, us here in the diaspora, we've been working with Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, um you know we we have we have seen that the reports that they wrote about gambia what that did for the country in terms of providing uh you know uh getting people's attention on the gambia and also the fact that uh, uh Jamme emptied our coffers when he was leaving he left with everything the gambia need the international community there is a country that only exports uh, uh peanuts you know we really there's not much that we can do Uh, for ourselves. The education system is not the best standard. Uh, So definitely we would need international partners to help us stand on our feet. And once that is done, then the responsibility will be on Gambians. The only thing we would have to do is to maintain very good bilateral relations. But apart from that, we should be able to do our stuff on our own. But right now, we definitely need them as partners in development Yeah.
0: And so talking about this political competition theme, civil society accountability, elections are a major part of that. And we've seen in the past in Gambian elections, issues of transparency and openness during the process. And I'm wondering, what are you hearing in terms of reforms to how elections are conducted in the country? Are they going to continue using the marble system as they've used? Or are you hoping or thinking that they may transition to other ways of balloting?
1: The chairman of the IEC did announce at a press conference that the Gambia will be using uh, paper ballots. Uh, they didn't say when yet, uh, but he made that disclosure not long ago. And uh, when it comes to electoral reforms, we have not had anything yet from the government, but people are pushing that uh, for us to have uh, like a second round of voting. Because mm-hmm. what we have in Gambia is anybody who has, um, you know, any uh, even one uh, before, after, before you would be the winner. So what we are trying to do is to have a second round of voting, but uh, none of that is uh, discussed yet. The government didn't say anything about that or time limits. I think right now what, what they are talking about is to uh, to amend the upper age limit in the constitution. This will give uh, judges uh, the, the, the right to to serve in, in Gambian courts, like uh, the, the Gambian judges, because you've seen we depend a lot on foreign judges from Nigeria and Sierra Leone. But as to electoral reforms, uh, the government has not said anything yet. We're hoping that when the Constitutional View Committee is set up, uh, they would look into those areas.
0: Now, you personally, what are your thoughts on the term limit issue? Uh, Many countries in the ECOWAS region have a two-term limit. In fact, many at ECOWAS tried to pass a region-wide norm on having a two-term limit. But the the Gambia under JAME and as well as Togo vetoed those efforts. So I'm curious, what are your thoughts? I mean, is that a good thing that Gambia should do, implementing a two-term limit?
1: There is no way we're going to give any president the opportunity now to to rule us forever. It's never going to happen And the president spoke last week at something and he said no president would be here for more than two terms. So that is something that the Gambian people want. Even if the government said it's not going to happen, we would make sure that it happens. And I think they know that because, I mean, you cannot be president for life. You know, after two terms, that's enough. You need to go and give another person a chance. So yes, we would make sure that that happens, that a president would only serve two terms. And after two terms, another president will come in. In fact, it's two five-year terms. If, if it was left to me alone, we'll do two four-year terms. Because five years would be too long. Ten years is a long time.
0: Now, thinking broadly about the Gambia, what in your mind are some of the major or maybe top three major challenges that the country face? We've talked a lot about other ones, specific issues that are ongoing. But in your opinion, what are those three or four big issues that the Gambia really needs to deal with, particularly in the coming months, but also long-term?
1: The economy is very bad. You know, the people's living condition, people want it to change. Everything is expensive. There is no uh, employment. Uh, There is a high uh, rate of youth uh, unemployment, which is in the Gambia right now. Power is a problem. There is no electricity. Sometimes life would go off for 18 hours. Water is also an issue, and I think no country can be developed without water and electricity and a vibrant economy. And also, uh, take um, the the youth employment business, uh, you know, as something that is very serious. The health issue, the education issue. If you see the reason why <clears throat> Africa is lacking behind in a whole lot of things, is because of education. So I believe education should also be given a priority. So the economy education, uh, you know, uh, people's health, the healthcare system is really bad, water, electricity. I think these are things that uh, battle should really uh, take into consideration.
0: And you mentioned the youth there as well. Gambia is a very young country and I, I'm curious, how are the youth being included or or not included in the current ruling coalition as well as the media and some of these other arrangements in, in civil society. Are they given the opportunity to be engaged in this process more than they had under Jame?
1: Well, 65 percent, about 65 percent of the government population consists of young people. Mm-hmm. And uh, right now we have not seen that uh, kind of like, you know, that big uh, movement in uh, when it comes to uh, when it comes to uh, the the involvement of young people in the government. Uh, but like the government keeps saying, give us time, we're just coming in, we have plans. And I'm sure you know about that project that they signed with the EU uh, to mm-hmm. stop the youth from taking the back way so that they can stop in the country, uh, they can stay in the country and be engaged in businesses. So those projects are all there. Uh, they've not been implemented yet, but I'm sure, you know, I didn't ask, but I hope uh, that they start working on them now. Uh, we will start asking questions about those. In fact, that reminds me. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So
0: my last question is, you know, as an outside observer and we're we're all learning about the Gambia as political transition takes place, what are some things that analysts and researchers should be really looking at when they look at the gambia and thinking about this political transition in your mind how how should we approach the gambian in, in particularly in this new dispensation
1: well i think gambia did great by uh, you know removing a dictator uh who's who was really entrenched and somebody who's been uh, killing um you know his own people i think that's an example Uh, that the world needs to know about. I was at one of the universities in Alabama uh, and DRC, uh, there was this guy who wants to be president of DRC, he was speaking there. And somebody stood up and said, why don't you do what Gambia did? I was very proud because they didn't even know I'm Gambian. So Mm -hmm. I think that's something that, uh, uh, that, you know, can be out there so that other people can learn from it. And, um, you know, um, uh, apart from that, I think uh, uh, what they also uh, should uh, need to know is that the gambia is still you know it's still young despite we have independence for over 50 years but not much has been done uh we've been having issues with our leaders the 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 first president that was there was very very uh transparent and democratic but unfortunately you know things didn't uh, work right for him in terms of developing the country uh the second one came he was a dictator he killed his people he built roads he did hospitals without uh Without medication, schools without good teachers, and now we have another one who don't have a lot of experience, which is also a very big issue. Uh, So we're hoping that by the time we get to the fourth president of the Gambia, maybe things would get better. Uh, But Gambia is definitely an example because nobody thought that we would be removed without nobody you know so that's a good thing that we did because at some point we were on the radio talking to our people saying we are all the same people it's only in gambia that you can get off at the airport and say take me to fatu's house and somebody will take you there <laughs> because we're all each other we're all related yeah. so we used that on our people uh, during the election we said don't start anything if you beat anyone it's your cousin it's your mom it's your sister so we spoke to the uh, the, the, the the military if Jam asks you to kill anyone, remember, you're going to be killing your own sister. So that worked. Thank
0: you. Thank you so much. Ms. Fatou Kamara is the founder and CEO of the Fatou Network, an online radio station focusing on the politics and ongoings in the Gambia. We have been talking to Ms. Kamara about Gambia's political transition. Ms. Kamara, thank you for talking to the Leaders of Africa Project and all the best with contributing to the truth and reconciliation efforts in the Gambia. What is necessary for truth and reconciliation efforts to succeed? The Leaders of Africa Project will explore this question and others in subsequent broadcasts. Do you have thoughts on whether the political transition is heading in the right direction for the Gambia? We want to hear from you. Email us your questions and comments at yourvoice@leadersofafrica.org. And that's it for me, Peter Pinar, on this episode of Leaders Voices from the Leaders of Africa Project. Thank you for listening.
1: Until next time.